Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Hey Phoebe. Hey Jules, how are you? I'm good, how are you? You know what, I'm good. It felt like it was warm this weekend. It felt like maybe this is coming to an end. It's definitely not. Actually, just as an aside, there's a podcast that I started listening to recently called uh, I've Never Seen the OC. Did you watch the OC when it was? Yeah, I did. Yeah, but like for like maybe two seasons max. I actually didn't watch it at the time because I didn't have that channel. I've obviously since watched it, whatever. But the premise of this podcast is that these two friends, one of them's never seen it before, so on and so forth. But one of the episodes that I was listening to this morning is from March of last year. And obviously everyone is talking about like lockdown with fresh eyes. And one of the girls goes, can you imagine if someone listens to this in like two years time? Hopefully this is well and truly over by then. And I was just in Sainsbury's and I was thinking, oh my God. <laughs> so I think all of us or the majority of us just did not anticipate that this would actually be a thing, like mm-hmm. a relenting thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it must be hilarious when people kind of listen to content a year ago and people thought, oh, we're just going to lock down for a couple of weeks and go back to work. Right. Like, even thinking about you and I, we have now been recording remotely for longer than we were ever recording in person. And when we first made that transition and when we first got our mics to start doing this from home and everything, it was such a novelty. And now I can't believe that we ever did it any other way because that feels like it was so long ago. Yeah, exactly. And I think COVID is awful, really, really awful. And I do understand that it's a tough time for so many people but we would still be recording in a studio if it wasn't for covid so i think for us it definitely gave us an opportunity to think how do we do this remotely and i think it's a lot more sustainable it's given us a bit more flexibility so i'm definitely grateful for that oh totally and i think that like there are little bright spots over the past year i wouldn't have even applied for an mba except for that I thought everything was going so crazy. So why would me applying for the MBA be any crazier than everything else that was going on? That's something that I would have just continued talking about, like, oh, will I, won't I? So there are things that have been good about the past year. And obviously, I know that we all know that. But sometimes it's helpful to actually have a grounding moment and genuinely make a list of what those things are. Yeah, I think it's important to take that time. Otherwise, you just get so overwhelmed by the fact that you're in a never-ending lockdown. Totally. <laughs> so you've got to take the time to be a bit grateful because I do think the few people I have spoken to, like lockdown's definitely taking a toll now. Completely. And what's funny is that around this time last year, it's very kind of fitting. This time last year, I think it's around when we did our royal special because Harry and Meghan had just announced that they were leaving the royal family. And obviously in the past week, they've announced that they are not intending to return. So what what have been your thoughts or have you been reading about it at all? Or in fact, actually, let me add a little aspect to that question. When you heard that they weren't coming back, did any part of that align with, oh, that's similar to, you know, experiences that I have had over the past year where I've had a realisation of X, Y, Z just talking about, you know, good things that have happened and 
ways in which COVID has pushed you out of your comfort zone? Well, I think it's it, for, in their context, I don't think it was COVID related like at all. I think it got to the point where it was so untenable to stay and like being newlyweds is hard enough without having like a whole institution against you, multiple institutions against you. If you look at, you know, the firm and then if you look at the press, it was just untenable. So when I heard that they weren't going back, it wasn't really surprising. But I think it all kind of started to kick off a bit last week when they announced that they're expecting baby number two. British press was like attacking them. So you're like, okay, here we go again. And it's so interesting because you think that with everything going on with the pandemic, it would make people take a step back and perhaps there could have been a different outcome. Perhaps, you know, the Queen would have said, yes, I can allow you to perform these royal duties, even if they take away their titles, because Harry doesn't need his royal title necessarily to be a patron of a British institution. Mm-hmm. So I feel that this, the final outcome, which is they've been stripped of their titles, they've been stripped of all of the patronages that they had in the UK. I think that's literally throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But this is the British way. Yes. <laughs> that's how things go down in the UK. And I think it's like if there's a certain level of myopia with it as well, definitely, where you think about... You know, there are various maxims that are always trotted out when the British media are talking about the royal family. And it's like, oh, never complain, never explain, all of this kind of stuff. But we said a couple of weeks ago about, actually, it was obviously before Christmas, but we were talking about how the um, royal family is like a, a corporation. And they needed to roll out some work from home policy because <laughs> in letting Harry and Meghan leave, they've really missed a trick in how to modernise the royal family. And I actually just, I think it's so unfortunate because we really missed a good one. We really missed the opportunity to have a powerful pair kind of at the helm in the UK. And you've said this before, and I think it's so true, you know, like, what do you think about when you look at the UK? Now that we've Brexited, this kind of rule Britannia blasting through the airwaves, what do you associate with, the UK because it's already been discussed that Amsterdam is likely to take London's place as the financial hub of Europe and the EU have already kind of confirmed that if London deregulates in order to become more competitive we'll be slapped with tariffs from the rest of Europe so we've missed a trick on on several levels here. Prior to Brexit I feel that people didn't even know that there were people in England that were not posh. I feel like Brexit really was mask off. And then you had all these like interviews and, you know, not trying to be mean, but you did have like all of these interviews of people from like other parts of the country with like missing teeth and everything. And it really showed, wow, England is not really the the England of tea and crumpets, right? So it, it all got exposed. And then what they've done with Harry and Meghan, I feel is really shown, it's really shone the light on racism Mm -hmm. in this country what's happening with Meghan I don't think anyone can say that this has got nothing to do with with her race yeah it would be so naive to try and pretend that racism isn't firmly entrenched in this and this is where I think that you see really how staid and how stale the royal family's approach to this kind of rhetoric is because you've got Prince William coming out and saying, oh, racism is unacceptable. 
dot, 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 in football. But never anything about his sister-in-law or his nephew encountering it. And, you know, when the Queen released that statement and as part of the statement, um, she said, you know, Harry and Meghan had stepped back from obviously active duty last year and had decided that they would not, quote, continue with the responsibilities and duties that come with a life of public service. And it's just so tone deaf. So many people have lost their jobs. So many people have been unable to pay their mortgages, their rent, livelihoods and lives have been ruined over the past year. And for the royal family to still be pretending that the work that they do is actually meaningful is so absurd at this point. And I'm so surprised because a year... Oh, you're surprised? No, as in like a year and a half ago, I was a huge royalist. I would say even, you know, I was so interested in all of them. And I still feel like the European royals have a little bit of my heart. Like I still like reading the fashion blogs. I still like reading what's going on. I am revolted by the British royal family now. We're living in a world where Harry and Meghan have basically been kicked out and Prince Andrew is still firmly in the bosom of the royal family. This should disturb anyone it's completely unacceptable and what's additionally unacceptable is a further kind of slap in the face whatever your feelings are on on military and military spending and and war and everything like that prince harry is one of the very royals who have actively served actually served excuse me in active combat so he served for 10 years and he served two terms in afghanistan during active war Most unfortunately, the only other royal that actually springs to mind who has also done that is Andrew in recent years, who fought briefly in the Falklands. But Harry has been stripped of all his military patronages, despite his actual work behind the scenes with mental health, PTSD, and endeavours like the Invictus Games and the Endeavour Fund. But fortunately, we've still got Prince Andrew holding his military patronages and holding those titles. Yeah, so that's why, you know, it's not adding up. I think it's hugely disappointing. And I think you mentioned with the British media as well that, you know, the racism, it just comes spilling out. And I think that that was really reinforced last week because you had the announcement on Sunday that Meghan and Harry were expecting their second child. Then on Monday, you had the announcement that Harry and Meghan are going to be sitting down with Oprah for a 19-year mm-hmm. interview on the 7th of March. And the British media did not know what to do with that information. So suddenly Oprah's being, you know, called the tabloid presenter or the, you know, the, the television presenter who got her start in tabloids or basically trying to disenfranchise the fact that Oprah is a billion dollar industry she's a self-made billionaire and she's an african-american woman who came from absolutely nothing but in the eyes of the british media apparently you're just uppity honestly the british press obviously they're the press that i know about so i don't know what it's like in other countries that much the british press is really horrific and you really see it in its rawest form when the subject is a black woman and I've been thinking about this in the context of Serena Williams and there was an article that came out in the Evening Standard, I think it was last week, and I think the headline was Serena Williams bullies her way to the semi-final. 
and we were having a chat about this in one of our whatsapp groups and it was like oh is this positive like is this like negative and someone's like oh serena has such a powerful swing you could say that like she bullies other players and stuff like that and they were like oh lebron's game has been described as a bully as well and that's why racism is so pervasive because there was even a cover of lebron james you know he was on the cover of vogue and he was literally playing like a king kong character Yes, and he had the white model like thrown yeah. over his shoulder or something like that. Like hugely problematic. Hugely problematic. And when you think about someone like Serena Williams, who is one of the greatest athletes of all time, she's always presented in such a negative way, and she's always presented as an aggressor, a bully. Her relationship with the press and every time she's in the British press, it's always so negative and it's always so awful. And what they're trying to do is pit Serena against Naomi Osaka. They're trying to pit them against each other in a way that is problematic. And then I saw something on LinkedIn that really kind of summarised how I feel about it. And the headline was, Naomi is not Serena's opponent. She's her legacy. And Naomi says it all the time. Me and my sister wouldn't have play tennis if it wasn't for Venus and Serena Williams like when Naomi first used to play Serena like in the early days before she won her four grand slams like you could see that there was so much emotion in it for her because she was playing her greatest idol Serena Williams like I can't even get into it because for me it's like everything that Serena Williams has achieved it's so insane that she's still being dragged in the way that she is. And also, if you look at Serena, like the, the time that she's been playing and the fact that she's still playing at the level that she is, it's insane. But it's like, if Serena doesn't win, Serena's not worth playing. But did Tim Henman ever win? Does Tim Henman have a grand slam? I'm so glad you said that because I was thinking that last week when she got emotional in a post-match interview when she was asked about retiring. And it was kind of... You know, the narrative is always so anti-Serena that it's always designed to make her look either like a bully, a domineering aggressor, or that she is feeble and past it. There's never just any representation of her just as a woman. She's either crying because she's lost and it's like, oh, she should have never come back after having children, or she's breaking her racket into pieces on the course and it's oh! like, she's so unpredictable and volatile. I just Googled Tim Henman Grand Slam. Zero. Zero. Henman Hill every day. Henman, 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 Henman. Nobody was tired of this guy losing every single Grand Slam tournament. Nobody was tired of it. But then if Serena doesn't win, it's like, oh, she's past it. It's like when she's winning, oh, the, the Williams sisters are winning too much. They should give someone else a chance. When she doesn't win... Oh, yeah. Um, oh, are you sure you can take it? And they did the same thing to Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton came second in one of his races and the commentators were saying, oh, is he past it? It was crazy. And the guy was literally, he was literally like two minutes behind. And it's like, oh, oh Lewis, I don't think he's got it anymore. It's time to retire for Lewis. And this is the thing. This is why some people were so ready and able to call out the media narrative about Meghan Markle because the passion has existed for so long. Obviously, as you noted, like 
we're talking specifically about British media right now, but it's recognisable globally, internationally. So, you know, you'll remember when Harry and Meghan filmed that TV show for ITV, um, Harry and Meghan, An African Journey. And she said to the, the journalist, Tom Bradby, it's not enough to survive, you have to thrive, which as a statement is so neutral. And anyone and everyone can acknowledge, yeah, I'm not just trying to get by. I am trying to enjoy my life. I am just married. I've got a newborn child. I want to be feeling joy in the day to day. And yet it was absolutely eviscerated in the press. She was so ungrateful. What a time to be saying this. And what's so interesting is so much of that critique was like, how dare she be saying this? when they're on a tour in Africa. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. Why is everyone in in the entire continent of Africa just miserable? So they couldn't possibly... Do you know, the the racism is there in that statement, but I don't think people were prepared to actually... You know, oh, it's so... How could she be saying something like that when they're on a tour in Africa? What do you think? Wow. That's another conversation for another day um, in terms of you know, how people view the African continent. So I guess they were trying to say is, oh my gosh, you know, you guys are royals and you're in Africa, the the worst continent on the face of the earth. How dare you not be grateful or something like this. Look at all these smiling Africans all around you. They'd be so grateful to be destroyed daily in the press. (laughs) If only they could be accused of genocide and war for eating an avocado. They'd be counting their blessings. Exactly. Um, But when you are not white and you exist in a white space or a space that was traditionally for white folks, people expect you to be grateful. The image that comes to mind is like Oliver Twist. And it's like, please, sir, please, sir, more, sir. (laughs) They want you to be Oliver Twist every day. And when you're not, when you don't bring that Oliver Twist energy, that's when they turn against you. And it obviously happened to Megan because it happens to everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast and you're black and you exist comfortably and own a white space, you've got people that have an issue with your confidence. They have an issue with you wanting to thrive. So I think if anyone else had said that, it would seem quite benign. Mm-hmm. I'm sure if Kate Middleton said, I don't just want to survive, I want to thrive. I'm sure that people would, feel quite empowered by that statement. Um, but sort of coming from Megan, it's like, you're off the streets. How dare you have any expectations to thrive? Can you spell thrive? Can you grow up in the ghetto? What could you possibly know about thriving? <laughs> it's crazy. You know, it, and it's so funny because there was something I was reading and, you know, I know that we've got other things that we want to touch on today. Obviously, I am transparent in the fact that I am a Megan Stan. But you know what's really gratifying is that I really feel like I've been proved right in being one. And I was all about the Kate Middleton hype when she first married in. I was, you know, that whole kind of, oh, fairy tale princess narrative. And the rose-tinted glasses have really come off. But there was something I was reading that was so powerful, and I, I just want to cite it here because the fact is that a lot of the charities that Megan and Harry worked for have asked to retain them as patrons because the whole fact is that actually and I have said this before in the podcast 
having a royal patron does very little to actually benefit you as an organization because showing up once every six years like Kate Middleton does and having a Zoom call with a couple of founders <laughs> actually does a huge amount of disservice to the day-to-day work that the, the organization do. Whereas if you've got the Grenfell cookbook or the Smartworks collection or the Invictus Games or the Endeavor Fund or the Wellchild Awards or any of the actual tangible things that Meghan and Harry have done and continue to do for the charities that they work for, that is what a charity needs and wants to exist. And so this is the the quote I want to give. When you talk about a charity dedicated to battling child poverty, what use is a royal patron if they can't actually speak out about anything political? So they can't mention any of the insidious damage caused by the Conservative government's austerity-driven policies. What use is having a patron like Princess Eugenie, who talks about child trafficking, when her father has been implicated in an international child sex trafficking scandal? This is the question that you actually have to ask. Mm-hmm. Harry and Meghan fucking off to Montecito and setting up a Spotify and Netflix deal are the least of your troubles. You kept talking about them getting a job, and guess what? They went and got one. What you wanted was to see them stacking shelves in Tesco, but that was <laughs> what they had. <laughs> You're fuming because they're not working in prep, but they were never going to work in prep. I'm sorry. I just, this is such a British story. This is the British story. The British story is you're too big for your boots. We're going to knock you down. And the act of knocking you down makes us sleep well at night. Us feeling like, oh, we got one up on that upstart, Megan. That makes a regular person in the UK feel vindicated. I'm not sure what they're vindicated from, but there is so much passion dedicated towards dragging Harry and Meghan. Their happiness is the best revenge for them. And they need to do whatever that takes so to protect that happiness, right? If that means moving away, well done. Meghan had a miscarriage. I'm not a medical professional, but miscarriages can be induced through stress. The fact that they are now ready to welcome baby number two, well done to them, you know? And if they want to go on Oprah and share their story, well done to them. Totally. So that's how I view it. Why would it, especially because there's levels to this, like the regular person, if you lose your job, if you're excommunicated from your family, yeah, you might struggle. But like you said, they were never going to be in that situation anyway. So what was the outcome that people thought would happen? That's it. It is the, as you said, you were not grateful enough. I don't care that you actually had a a job where you were generating good income. I don't care that you had, you know, your nice job. I don't care that you were already holidaying in the, the south of France or that you moved within the set that Harry moved within anyway. Them being set up, them going on that date... It's not me going on a date with Prince Harry. That would be noteworthy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean? He was already moving in these circles, but we want so badly for it to be this kind of my fair lady situation where she was 
completely stupid and ignorant and off the streets and she was in some room reciting her vows so that when she met Prince Harry she could go the rain in Spain falls mainly on me. <laughs> but the thing is I think that there was nothing that Meghan could have done and I don't know if I mentioned on the podcast before but I did watch a documentary about Princess Diana on Netflix and when we were talking about the crown, I was saying that, do you know what? I think that Diana's life was probably a lot worse. The crown, it was shocking, you know, for people that weren't sort of adults at the time. And what we saw in the crown in terms of what Princess Diana was going through, it was very shocking. But there's a documentary on Netflix, and I can't remember the name of it right now, um, but it went into some of this in a bit more detail. And Princess Diana's life was very, 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 very tough. And Princess Diana is or was a blue-blooded aristocrat. And she was treated abysmally by everyone. And we've spoken about this, about this, you know, last week, where when people go through things like that, it's not one person. It is actually unfair to just blame Prince Charles 100%, because it's not one person. It's cultural, it's systemic. Everyone was complicit to a certain extent. And that happened to Princess Diana. And I think knowing that... You know, once you do get married and you are in love with your partner and you want to protect them, I think looking at the odds, I think they both decided we actually need to dip. Because if that happens to the people's princess, if that happens to somebody that came from an aristocratic background, if we look at this from a hierarchical perspective, everything Princess Diana had, she deserved. So what would happen to Meghan as somebody who exists outside of that construct? It was never going to go well. And I'm so glad that they realised that really, really early on. Totally. Cut your losses. The lesson is cut your losses, walk away and go be happy. But And the, the flip side of this as well is that when you say that they recognised it early on, really, Harry has lived his whole life being literally referred to as the spare. And if you have lived your whole life knowing that your brother is so so important because he is the future future king you know the way we talk about will and kate in the press it would genuinely infer that they are weeks away from (laughs) throne. it's not happening it may not happen for another 40 years you know do you really think well okay probably not 40 because charles is 70 but no 40 at least minimum 110 (laughs) i know but the but the duke of edinburgh is 99 totally the the queen mother died when she was 101 i i actually as tongue-in-cheek as i was being it is not happening anytime soon but william has lived his life throwing his brother under the bus and (laughs) all of the media rhetoric about Megan started to really gain traction is when it initially started to come out that William was having an affair with Rose Chumley, one of his neighbours in Norfolk. And so what's going to happen now when you remove yourself from that construct, as you've said, and you're not available to be thrown under the, the bus the next time or fed to the press the next time your brother and his wife mess up. And also, my final note on this, because we've got other things that we're going to talk about today, but As a parent, and I mean this from William and Kate's perspective, there is no doubt that leaks have specifically come from the Cambridges or the Cambridge staff when all of this has been going on with Harry and Meghan. How do you look at your own three children 
knowing that your eldest son, George, is now the future, future, future king, but what Charlotte and Louis are supposed to be thrown under the bus in the same way at some point, they will do what Harry and Meghan have done. Harry and Meghan have now set the blueprint for being able to say, I would like to be removed from this narrative, putting a Taylor Swift on it and just going, I'm out. Charlotte will do the same and Louis will do the same, I would imagine, because the monarchy does not have long left. They had an opportunity to modernise and they opted not to. And the appetite for modernisation is not going anywhere. Nobody wants to modernise. Nobody wants to do anything innovative, creative, diverse, different. No, no one is interested in that. And we're not a revolutionary people. There is no evidence of like British people willing to revolt against the establishment in any way that's meaningful. So considering that life is going to get worse and worse and worse in the UK, like we're losing retail or we've lost retail. We're losing our financial services and we're not replacing those bread and butter industries with anything, right? So just based on that, it's going to be very, very tough in the UK. I think we're going to cling to our royal family and our imperial legacy even more because that's the nature of things. That's how things tend to go. The worse things go, the more people lean into nationalism and the British royal family is a part of that story there's nothing else not in a rude way if you know of something else that we have in this country please reach out to us on instagram i would love to hear from you but i think that the royal family is going to become more and more important and it's going to be a situation of um and i found this like when i was living in nigeria people would literally say oh my pastor is richer than yours They would live vicariously through their pastors and it would be like, oh, my pastor is richer than yours. And I think that it's going to be that whole thing of like, oh, yeah, you know, my royal family, blah, 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 because there's nothing else. I will be so interested to see how it plays out, because I think that obviously one of the things that people love to trot out so much is that, oh, they generate so much revenue in tourism. I know I used to trot that out myself. Obviously, we've not had tourists for the past 12 months. COVID isn't going to significantly impact our tourism for the foreseeable for at least another 12 months I would imagine we've now brexited what is that going to mean for like casual tourism as well also the way that the British media has been represented in the American media there is a distaste for the UK for a lot of Americans and I see this a lot because I go on I mean obviously anecdotal evidence but when I'm reading the comments on articles and blogs and things like that I see people going oh, I've, I've got no interest in visiting the UK anymore. I'm really happy that Megan's made it home to the US. To work. <laughs> we don't hate greatness and we don't hate ambition. Which, But I that's think- the thing about America, right? Americans love ambition. Americans love a self-made person. Americans love somebody that turned their back on the establishment. They love that. They love that. And actually, at the beginning, people were not that interested in the whole like Meghan and Harry thing. But when it became a bit of a drama and then they left the royal family and now they're in in America, people are actually more into them now. Totally. Watch watch Meghan become the venture capitalist to watch because people are already interested in the clever blends, the um, tea company that she's invested into. Mm-hmm. Like watch her be a VC investor and watch people actually sit up and take notice and for her 
and Harry to dictate where micro trends in the in the market go. Yeah, I could definitely see that. So well done to them. Like you said, it could have been an opportunity. It could have been like a redemption. You know, we didn't have to kind of double down, but that's the British way. I'm absolutely not surprised. But it was sad to see. I mean, these headlines are so awful, but I think Harry and Meghan have the last laugh and I just hope that they can like stay together because it's now one of those things where, you know, if something did happen and they were to separate, oof, that would be like another thing for the British press to talk about. And so I just don't want them to give anyone that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do think that even if they split, I still don't think Harry's coming back. But if he didn't come back and they did split, the British press wouldn't know what to do. They'd be like, but you got rid of the black woman you were married to. So why wouldn't you want to come back to the UK? Oh, I don't think he's interested. I, I, You're absolutely right. And I think that once you've been exposed to someone that's independent, once you've been exposed to someone that works through your childhood trauma with you and helps you build boundaries that empower you enough to just take a break from an environment that wasn't conducive to your well-being and your happiness. Because Harry was talking about mental health and some of the challenges that he's had. And I think that once somebody has shown you that there's another way to live, you don't move backwards, irrespective of what happened with that person. You have found this other way to live. So yes, we'll be following them and you know sharing our points of view on how things develop. Totally. And I think just to summarise it or to bring it back to its key points, as you said, the British media is scarcity mindset. And we talk about scarcity mindset so much, but scarcity mindset is so entrenched in the media narrative, just irrespective of who you are. And we do not want to settle for anything more than mediocrity, particularly when it comes to people of colour. Anything remotely indicative of ambition is negative and is uppity. I did want us to talk a bit about Daniel Kaluuya and his new movie, Jesus and the Black Messiah. And, you know, a couple of people have said, oh, check out this movie. It's really, really good. I haven't watched the movie yet. But essentially, the movie basically focuses on um, an FBI agent that infiltrated the Black Panther Party. And the information that he gave to the FBI basically allowed them to target and eventually kill Fred Hampton. And so I was watching like an interview that the cast did on Sway in the Morning. And it's always so interesting now because you've got all these black British actors, a handful of black British actors that are making their name in the US. And the same happened with Idris Elba. Like it was The Wire that basically made Idris Elba famous. And then obviously with Daniel Kaluuya, you had Get Out. He's been in Black Panther and now he's the lead role in this movie that's meant to be really good. So I can't wait to see it. But then, you know, during this interview, he was asked oh, why do you think that the roles that you've taken on in the US have been way more successful than some of the work that you've done in the UK? And he said something that really resonated with me and basically said that he thinks that there's more space to be Black in the US. And when you look at this trend of Black British stars blowing up in America, I feel it's a conversation that's worth having. When Daniel Luya was in Get Out, I remember Samuel L. Jackson said something about the film as a whole. And basically one of the comments that he made was that it was essentially a pity that it was a black British actor that had been used as the lead role. Because his comment was essentially that racism in the UK isn't as prolific and isn't as, as violent or whatever as it is in the US. 
so that it, he felt someone who had experienced the racism that America had to offer could have maybe given a more nuanced performance. Even though he stopped short of, you know, actually criticizing Kaluuya's performance, but it was like, listen, you can't fully understand the idiosyncrasies or the minutiae of what a performance like this would require because you wouldn't have experienced it. Yeah, yeah and that's the assumption. And just like how I said that, you know, Brexit kind of took the mask off British respectability, British poshness, sort of that tin crumpet story or image that England has. It showed that, you know what, not everybody lives that tea and crumpet life in the UK. I think obviously being black British, it's great to have actors like Daniel Kaluuya. It's great to have people like John Boyega who get out there and say, guys, racism is not geographical. It's not like a geotag. <laughs> you know, racism is universal. Racism is one of the most universal things that we have. It's something that exists in every culture. And Yes, of course, the American experience is different to like the British experience, but that doesn't mean that as an artist, I can't be used as a vessel to tell a story in an American context. But the issue we have is because there are not as many roles and opportunities for black actors as there are for white actors, I guess when an opportunity does go to a Daniel Kaluuya or it does go to a John Boyega, there is a level of resentment because there aren't that many opportunities, perhaps. And it tying back to what we were saying earlier about Meghan Markle, it's also like, why aren't you just grateful? Why would you be wanting more? And when Boyega spoke out during the BLM protests in the UK last year, well, they were taking place globally, but he was at one of the ones in London, you know, he acknowledged that he might never work again. So it's like, even when we talk about activism and, and protest and things like that, when it is a white celebrity doing it, it is peak, oh, aren't they fantastic? And obviously that's not always the case. Like, you look at someone like Jane Fonda, who didn't work for a long time, or who still struggles massively with, you know, her activism work from the, the 60s. But that we would be firmly in the 21st century and that you would have a black actor thinking, oh, because I attended a BLM protest, I may never work again. And the idea that you should tamp down your ambition and you should just be grateful for what is being mm -hmm. available to you, even though, as you said, the opportunities are more scarce than they are yeah. for your white counterparts. Exactly. I think that's exactly what happened with John Boyega, where it was like, you know what, you should be happy to be in the room. And we don't need your notes on character development and we don't need your ideas. You know, we've got this, basically. I found that interview on Sway with the cast, I personally found it a bit jarring in terms of some of the questions that Daniel Kaluuya was asked. But one of the positive things that came out of that interview from the female co-star, she was saying it was so empowering being involved in this project because you had a director that was immersed, you had a director that allowed them to be creative, allowed them to kind of share their ideas and to participate in that creative process. They had a bunch of Black Panthers, including Freddie Hampton Jr., who was heavily involved in the project. And so you could see that the project was really affirming. It wasn't one of those situations where it's like you're in the room, but it's like, we don't want to hear what you have to say. So I felt that was really positive. But I think this kind of pitting of Black British actors against 
you know, African-American actors, I keep seeing it and I think it's quite sad. I feel like you can never win. You can't win in the UK. You can't win if you go and do this in the US. And so, yes, there is a bigger marketplace, but it seems incredibly tough to navigate. I think it's kind of tying back as well to what we said earlier about scarcity mindset. And the, the, the fundamental message is that realising that, you know, what you just said there about power to the people, that there is strength in numbers, but we have been indoctrinated to focus on the infighting as opposed to banding together and looking to actually elevate voices en masse. You know what I mean? It's easy for the, the Black British actors to be fighting the African-American actors for scraps than to be like, actually, the, the problem isn't within our communities. Thank you. You have hit the nail on the head. You've said it perfectly. I think that's what made me so sad about this interview, because ultimately this movie's coming out of a studio. None of you on this interview are the ultimate beneficial owners of this project. And it's so sad to see people going at it for scraps, essentially, rather than thinking, how do we collaborate and do something bigger or on a grander scale? That's the kind of thing that I would like to see. So guys, thanks so much for listening to us today. If you've made it to the end of the show, well done. Like I said, a couple of episodes ago, the more you share this with a friend, the more you post on social media or like we share the audio clips or whatever, the sooner we will be able to be like, hey, here's a promo code for NARS Cosmetics at the end of the show <laughs> and get you 20% off your new blusher or whatever. Um, exactly. Please share with a friend. Thank you for listening and have a great week. Thank you. Bye. Bye.